a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Geopolitical tensions are escalating across Eurasia, ranging from the Israel-Hamas conflict to border skirmishes again between India and Pakistan. And at the same time, China and the United States have been pulling out all the stops and have tried to prevent further deterioration in their relations. And in October, the diplomatic schedule has been extraordinarily full with a flurry of high-level exchanges between the two sides. Chinese President Xi Jinping meeting with the California Governor Gavin Newsom, while China's top diplomat Wang Yi traveled to the United States, where he met with President Joe Biden. So, is a Xi-Biden meeting on the horizon at the upcoming APEC Leaders Summit in San Francisco? And what about the future of China-U.S. relations? To help us break down all these issues, I'm very pleased to be joined in Beijing by Andy Mock, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. And Charles Liu is a Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. Plus, in Shanghai, we have Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. A very warm welcome, gentlemen, friends. Welcome back to The Hub. Uh, let me start with you, Andy. Uh, during Wang Yi's three-day visit, he, of course, met with the president, uh, President Joe Biden. He met with Sullivan, the national security advisor, as well as Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state. Uh, your readings of uh, the meeting and the significance of Wang Yi's trip to Washington. I think what we're witnessing here is the death of American unipolar dominance. And when we look at phenomenon like this, uh, a very famous psychologist described the five stages of grief. There's yes. denial, there's anger, there's bargaining, there's depression, and there's acceptance. So I think what we're seeing here is the United States moving towards, uh, from anger towards bargaining with China uh, to look for uh, a way to uh, death probably isn't the right word, but a new modus vivendi where uh, the U.S. no longer has unipolar dominance. And I think across different uh, sections of the American policy world, people are coming to that recognition and seeing that, in fact, uh, bargaining, uh, negotiating, compromising really is the only way forward. And that's the frame within which I look at uh, Wang Yi's meetings. Well, Andy, when you talk about the recognition of having to compromise with a rising China, uh, do you think that is a consensus across the institutions and uh, the national security establishment in Washington? Or is it just a personal a shift, a personal recognition from President Joe Biden and his closed circles? Well, Wang Guad, so I'm a big science fiction fan, and William Gibson, the famous science fiction writer, once said, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And that's how I would describe the situation of how the U.S. views China. Certainly people like Gavin Newsom, uh, the governor of California, I think sees that the future is cooperating with China uh, to find win-win solutions. There are still, of course, people stuck in the past, uh, certain, I think, American Republican senators uh, who still believe that they should be fighting China tooth and nail uh, without any reservation. So I think uh, we're getting there, but uh, certainly it's not evenly distributed yet. All right. Uh, Joseph in Shanghai, let me ask you about this. Um, what is your reading of uh, what seems to be a warming of relations between Beijing and Washington? 
As we speak, the flying tigers are climbing up the Great Wall, the, the warriors, the fighters, when China and the U.S. were allies back in World War II, um, the, the Republican and uh, Democratic senators visiting China, and uh, Yellen, Raimondo, Kerry visiting Beijing. Uh, what's your reading of all this? Well, you know, there have been a lot of people uh, coming to China, but not uh, the other way around. And I think uh, the optics of uh, diplomatic uh, parity are important uh, to Beijing because uh, some in the U.S. have questioned why U.S. officials keep visiting China, but uh, not the other way around. Uh, and while there uh, have been reports uh, uh, that the meeting uh, touched on uh, key uh, uh, problems like the conflicts in, in Israel and Ukraine, uh, and that uh, likely touched on the old standby issue of, of Taiwan. Uh, in fact, I think probably it's, it's smart money to say that what they really discussed is, is a uh, diplomatic protocol uh, to facilitate a possible meeting between Biden and Xi at, at APEC. Now, it would be embarrassing to both sides if they both attend APEC and fail to meet, but it would also be embarrassing to one or both if the meeting is handled uh, poorly by one side or the other. Now, I agree with Andy uh, about the genius of uh, William Gibson. I didn't know he's a science fiction fan. I, I love William Gibson. Uh, but I'm a little less uh, optimistic uh, about uh, the general trajectory still of, of uh, U.S.-China relations. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important issue, isn't it, um, Joseph? The, the general trajectory, the long trend, uh, the trend line of China-U.S. relations, uh, which is still worrisome wherever you look at it, uh, be it uh, you know, the issue of Taiwan, the structural challenges, uh, frictions between Beijing and Washington, uh, the strategic competition that's insisted on China by, you know, many in Washington. Yeah, I, that's that's the case. And, and you know, my concern is that uh, what they're talking about is maybe uh, trying to facilitate not uh, being provocative towards each other uh, until the meeting takes place. Uh, but yeah. then I'm worried that uh, once the meeting takes place uh, and once Biden is back fully on the campaign trail, he'll once, a day, uh, once again be looking uh, t towards dog whistle issues uh, with respect to, to China. Okay, uh, Charles, uh, let me turn to you, my friend. Uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to the long-term trajectory of China-U.S. relations, uh, despite uh, all the, the signs of warming of relations recently? I think short-term optimist, but medium and longer-term pessimist. Short-term optimist because, number one, all the visits of senior U.S. officials and Wang Yi's visit to Washington is all in preparation for this meeting in, in APEC next month. And without full preparation, where the two sides already have some understanding, uh, I don't think the meeting will take place. It's too embarrassing to have a meeting without any results or with acrimonious reports of what happens. So I think all the preparatory work is now has, has not gone quite deep. The visit of Wang Yi to Washington it's an indication that uh, they've really reached some level of understanding or mutual understanding so the meeting can take place. In short term, also positive is what is happening with Ukraine and Russia and now Palestine and Israel, which really takes a lot of attention of Washington off continued suppression of China's rise. They have to now deal with these issues in which their proxies are in live-fire battles. So I think uh, this is actually short-term. Uh, it's conducive to a better or calmed relationship between China and the United States. Uh, Long-term, strategically, I don't think it's possible to think about a U.S. which accepts 
that there are multipolar powers coming through, it's very difficult for U.S. to get rid of their exceptionalism mentality. Yeah, that's interesting. Exceptionalism, uh, that's been translated into many, many things in China. Uh, some call it uh, right? Uh, I would personally prefer which means uh, it thinks it's unique uh, with, a, with a flavor of hegemony. Uh, I'm not sure. But um, uh, talking about uh, the policy, the, the grand strategy of Washington towards vis-a-vis uh, Beijing, Andy just made a point whereby he believes, uh, you know, he cited these five levels of uh, recognition from anger, rejection, to coming to terms with uh, a grief, uh, you know, a serious situation. Uh, do you agree with Andy? To what extent do you agree with Andy, Charles, that there could be a shift in the recognition of the U.S. national security establishment, that they have to work with the rising China, no matter if they like it or not? Oh, that's, that's factual. They have to work with China. But I don't think it's a unified view in Washington. Uh, it's not a unified view in the US, in U.S. population, among the U.S. population also. So I think uh, unless there is unified view on this, uh, then we can talk about the five possibilities. But I think right now it is still, well, California has been China friendly, so nuisance visit is fine. But uh, what about Texas? What about Florida? Forbidden Chinese to own land or own real property is passed by the state legislatures. So I think there's really diversity of opinion in the U.S., and that will continue to be the case for quite some time to come. Andy, you want to respond or add to what you have said? Sure. Well, I would say that I am optimistic that China's rise, whether it's technological, economic, or diplomatic, cannot be stopped. What I am concerned about, though, and Charles and Joseph alluded to this, is how to successfully deal with the United States. Because the problem is the U.S. Uh, is structurally incapable of honoring agreements. So, you know, there have been a number of 180-degree policy shifts with the change in presidents. But we also see with the recent Israeli invasion of Gaza, and Biden was 100 uh, percent supportive of Israel, and now that looks like that's starting to turn because of the isolation of the U.S. on the global stage. So, you know, to have a durable agreement, uh, both sides have to be able to follow through. And I think this is the biggest challenge to reaching a, uh, a more harmonious accommodation, and it's hard to see uh, a way out of that. But again, I think uh, as Ayn Rand said, to use another uh, reference, you can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the consequences of reality. And it's increasingly clear, I think, to everyone in the national security establishment in the U.S., uh, that China's military is advancing technologically with hypersonic missiles. Uh, the size of its navy exceeds that of the U.S.'s. Its capabilities are growing every day. So I think, again, uh, there still are people who have their heads in the sand in the U.S., but sooner or later, uh, they cannot escape the consequences of reality. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Joseph, in Shanghai, we've seen uh, Gavin Newsom, the California governor's, um, what I would call charm offensive in China, of course. Uh, the Chinese side uh, welcomed him uh, magnificently. Uh, California have this long-established relations with Chinese provinces. 
Uh, what do you think have come out of uh, Newsom's visit, and what do you think about um, the symbolism of the Chinese side welcoming him the way they did? Well, you know, I, I was contacted by a lot of uh, uh, people uh, in, in different academies asking me what I thought about uh, Gavin Newsom's uh, future presidential prospects. Uh, uh, that looks pretty good like now, no? Idea. Well, it's hard to say, you know. Uh, uh, if we look at history, um, generally it's only been Republicans uh, who've come out of California who've been able to win uh, the center or, or even uh, uh, swing states uh, in, in the rest of the U.S., uh, Nixon, for example, and, and uh, uh, Reagan. So uh, whether or not uh, we can have a Democrat, uh, a climate-friendly Democrat coming out of California, maybe he will be um, uh, a sign of the times that, that something is really shifting in, in the American polis. But, you know, I think it's too, er too early to tell at this, at this point. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it was a very positive uh, uh, visit. There's been a long, very positive relationship between California and China uh, today. There are six million Asians living in California. A quarter of these are Chinese Americans. And in fact, 40 percent of all Chinese Americans live in California. Uh, so there are uh, substantial people uh, to people ties. And, you know, another issue is uh, that um, China has found that dealing with states, uh, California and New York especially, has been a lot easier than dealing with Washington. Now, in California's case, in, in 2022, uh, China was uh, uh, California's third largest uh, export uh, destination with approximately uh, 18.15 billion in exports. And also in 2022, China was a major source of FDI uh, for California. Uh, Chinese uh, foreign-owned enterprises uh, in California provided uh, almost 20,000 jobs through uh, 700 firms and contributed almost $2 billion in wages. So I think you know, it's not just about uh, climate change cooperation. Uh, uh, California has a substantial uh, economic interest in having uh, strong bilateral ties. And indeed, a lot of studies have indicated that California, perhaps more than other states, has been really hurt by uh, America's aggressive policies towards uh, Beijing. Right. Uh, Charles, let me turn to you. When you, when you look at the provincial level, um, provincial to state cooperation between China and the United States, do you think they can somehow drive and galvanize uh, a national level policymakers or the other way around? I think it's, it's quite positive, the direction of moving from state to province level of collaboration, because these are fairly concrete collaboration in trade, in investment, in manufacturing, and so on, and eventually leading to people-to-people -people exchange from goods to goods to people-to-people and then maybe even ideas. This may create a conflict between states in the US because you have the liberal uh, democratic uh, California and then you have the deep south. What will happen there is uh, I think there will be some conflict in terms of views, but it's a good thing because arguments and laying out the facts is all positive. But in terms of Newsom, I think his behavior was presidential. And it was very, very clear that he was uh, gathering foreign policy credit <laughs> for his potential uh, 2028, course, perhaps, huh? Perhaps, or even 2024. But he said, in in he said uh, during NBC interview that he's supporting Biden during the 2024 cycle. But we don't know, right? You never know. But we don't know whether or not Biden will actually run because there are some serious questions or doubts as to whether or not he's capable of running especially with the vice presidential candidate who is really not very much liked by the U.S. public. Right. So I think um, 
2024 is a possibility, but whatever the case, if a democratic regime goes in in 2024, Newsom potentially could become something more significant hmm. in this federal government. So That would be very interesting. Uh, talking about commerce and trade, uh, Andy, in September in an interview with NBC, U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimondo said that the U.S. will continue to sell billions of dollars of chips to China. But here's the catch. They will not sell the most advanced chips to China. Let's hear what Raimondo had to say. You know, the export controls are about national security, not an economic advantage. So we're going to be as strict as strict can be and as hardline as possible, denying China the most sophisticated chips. But we're also going to sell, you know, like I said, billions of dollars of less sophisticated chips, which, by the way, Chuck, is good for America creates revenue for American companies, which they can plow back into research and development, which allows us to lead the world in innovation. You know, we've heard that, right? Very eloquent, articulate U.S. politicians and great rhetoric. Um, what do you make of all that, Andy? Well, Wang Wan, as you say, I mean, it sounds good, but I think the reality is somewhat different. So first of all, just look at the economics these legacy chips sell for much lower prices because they're much more of a commodity. And I think, in fact, China is very competitive with these larger chips, uh, I think 28 nanometer and above, uh, so-called legacy chips. So it's hard to see how the U.S. would get too much benefit from that. The other is that the more advanced chips, like those made by NVIDIA, uh, these GPUs uh, for AI processing, are really the ones that make the most money and, of course, are the most uh, advanced technologically. And here, you know, as I said earlier, uh, I think I'm very optimistic and I'm, I'm in very good company uh, that uh, China's technological rise cannot be stopped. So we look at Huawei's advances uh, with the Ascend chip uh, that is a substitute um, for NVIDIA's uh, GPU. Uh, we can see uh, memory chips in China also making great strides. So I think ultimately this undercuts American competitiveness in what they consider their most important strategic industry, which is semiconductors. And we've heard Jensen Huang, who's the uh, CEO of NVIDIA, say something to that effect, that China is such an important market for them that if they lose revenue, uh, it may be very difficult for them to invest uh, enough R&D to be competitive in the next generation of chips. Yes, yeah, certainly there has been this uh, you know, self-reflection within the Chinese tech circle and uh, you know, the rebirth, if you will, of a certain level of technology that is breaking previous bottlenecks uh, here in China. Joseph, uh, I want to you know, talk about more specifics. The announcement to increase direct flights between China and the United States from 24, that is the current level, to 35, starting from November the 9th. What do you think of that? Well, this is rolling back uh, the restrictions that were put in place uh, during the pandemic. And frankly, uh, they should have been lifted uh, months ago. Uh, uh, travel and airline lobbies have pressed uh, the U.S. to, list, uh, to lift these limits, uh, saying it's costing uh, the U.S. an estimated $11 billion a year in uh, annual uh, tourism receipts from Chinese visitors. Uh, meanwhile, uh, others uh, have argued that the market would actually like to see double uh, this new amount. In other words, uh, 70 uh, round-trip flights a week. So there are questions like, uh, why did it take so long to lift the number so little? 
Uh, and will we actually see Americans returning to China or only uh, Chinese uh, visiting America? Uh, it may well be that the U.S. Uh, has not increased the number of flights in part uh, because Americans have not pressed the government to do so, perhaps because uh, the U.S. has been poisoning uh, American opinion against China, uh, even putting out uh, travel advisories that uh, try to frighten Americans uh, thinking about visiting China. So uh, let's not say that uh, increasing the number of flights is, is merely fodder uh, or, or a distraction. Uh, it, is, it is substantial, but let's do question the timing uh, significance and value of this decision and uh, who's really benefiting. Yeah, Joseph, when you talk about um, you know, improving or the prospect of warming ties between China and the United States, what do you think are some of the lower hanging fruits? You know, people have been talking about the, the increase of student exchange between the two sides, uh, the, the flights increase, uh, like you have mentioned, so on and so forth. Well, again, it's, it's largely been one-sided. You know, I think that there's this concern among uh, the very powerful uh, uh, lobby for uh, American colleges and universities that have seen a real fall-off in, uh, in Chinese interest in attending uh, U.S. universities, given all the travel restrictions, but also the increased discrimination that uh, um, has been experienced by Asians and Chinese, especially in various states and in various institutions. But there's also, you know, concerns down the road about um, financial restrictions, investment restrictions, as was also noted already, the, the, the fact that uh, uh, some Chinese money is not welcome in, in, um, in property investment in, in Texas and, and Florida. So, you know, when we talk about low-hanging fruit, we normally talk about climate change cooperation. Of course, this is an existential threat that, that faces all of us. I'm, I'm not sure the U.S. is really that interested in it. We haven't really seen much significant uh, substantial progress on that front since Biden took office. But clearly, uh, uh, California and some other places are uh, much more interested in, in, in seeing that move forward. Uh, but I think the low-hanging fruit remains climate change cooperation. Whether or not that happens at a, at a state to, 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 to like a, the California to, to Beijing level or, or, um, uh, or federal to, 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 to national level, national to national level, uh, remains to be seen. I, I'm not yet very optimistic about people to people exchanges, although we keep talking about this as something that has to happen and we keep seeing increasing uh, high level meetings and key meetings. But we really don't yet see a return of American scholars and a lot of the Chinese scholars that have been visiting. Uh, the U.S. have not been receiving warm welcomes from what I'm hearing. Uh, so uh, I think things still remain stuck in uh, a very uh, cold moment and, and hopefully uh, one that won't become colder, but, but still tends to be uh, uh, trending that way. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case uh, you know, against the wish of many uh, students on both sides and uh, educators. Uh, Charles, what do you think should be the deliverables going forward in uh, you know, this month and the next months, hopefully, uh, with a presidential meeting happening or not. We don't know for sure, but uh, it is the hope. Uh, what do you think can be some of the deliverables? I think, as Joseph said, the environmental side is certainly something that is possible. But there are other sides. And the question is whether or not the U.S. Congress would, uh, would look favorably upon this. For example, electric vehicles. There have been plans to build up electric vehicle battery factories in the U.S. That was uh, cut off by, this, by the federal government. This is Ningda uh, Shidai, wanted to do a joint venture with Ford. So there are commercial sectors, technology sectors, with things which are hanging there, but they're not low-hanging fruit, and they're probably going to be very difficult to be executed because of the hangover from the bashing of China over the last three or four years.
I don't, I don't see any other things except maybe some positive statement about how there should be peace in the Middle East. Talking about the Middle East, uh, yeah, yeah. They're talking about the Middle East, uh, Andy. Let me turn to you. Uh, do you foresee the conflict, the escalation of conflict between Israel and Palestine, becoming another proxy conflict between China and the United States and U.S.'s allies versus uh, the rest? or it could actually be an opportunity where China and the U.S. coordinate their policies? Well, I think that's such a crucial question, Wang Guan. Um, you know, there's enormous concern that if, do, if this does escalate, it could end catastrophically, even with the use of nuclear weapons. So I think there is a shared interest with China and the U.S. to address this problem, keep it from escalating. However, there are very, very uh, difficult challenges uh, with the Palestinian people. They've, you know, suffered a lot for, what, 70, 75 years. Um, China recently, uh, Premier Li Qiang, you know, I think, made a statement that uh, China stands with and, and supports Iran. So we can certainly see the possibility of this being another uh, I think the word you use is a proxy conflict between uh, not just the U.S. and China, but even Russia mm -hmm. as well. And here we have to, I have to point out that if we are seeing this kind of uh, formation, uh, the U.S. and its you know, increasingly small number of allies are vastly outnumbered population-wise. Um, if we look at the economy in PPP terms, which arguably is the right way to look at it, they're also outnumbered there. And when you look at the military uh, as well, it's really the U.S. doesn't really have such a large advantage. So I think this would be very much not in the American interest to turn this into uh, some kind of proxy conflict. All right, with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Bye for now. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hamyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America.